Hello there, listeners, and welcome to episode three of Outer Rim Reads, a podcast that journeys chapter by chapter through various Star Wars novels, both in legends and canon. My name is Andrew Geha, and I'm your host along this journey. In this episode, we will continue through Star Wars Thrawn, covering chapters 5 and 6, and I am joined today by co-host of the Lamppost Listener Podcast and lifelong Star Wars fan, Daniel. Daniel, how you doing, man? Thanks for being here. I'm doing well. I'm excited to be here today. Yeah, thanks for coming on the show. I just want to introduce the fans to your background on Star Wars and also specifically to Thrawn as a character and to Thrawn as as a novel. Uh, so could you give a little on how you uh, fell in love with Star Wars? Yeah, I... Was I've been a fan of Star Wars since like I don't know, three or four years old. I'm pretty young uh, when I watched the the original movie. I actually, it's a funny story. I remember I don't remember that well, but my mom always tells me that I had gotten kind of into Power Rangers when I was like three or four, and I started kicking people at preschool. I think I probably, maybe I was like four or five. And she was like, well, he can't, he's going to get kicked out of preschool because he keeps kicking people. And I really kept That's wanting good. to watch Power Rangers. And my mom was like, well, actually, I have something better for you where there's no kicking. And so she, <laughs> she showed me the the uh, original uh, 77 Star Wars to get me away from Power Rangers. So, okay. I, so that's, a good swap. that's a weird way to get into uh, the, the saga, but that was the way that I got into it. So you've moved from kicking people to now striking people with lightsabers. Yeah, I was going to say, yeah, then I would go out in the playground and pick up a stick and be like, this is a lightsaber I just cut off your <laughs> a little arm. upgrade right there. Yeah. <laughs> cut uh, off your arm. Uh, no. and, and then as far as Thrawn goes, I, I read the, the Legends trilogy first mm. that came out in the early 90s. I read that sometime probably around high school or so between after Revenge of the Sith had come out. Sure. And, you know, that was it. You know, at the time, it was like, this is yeah. all we have for Star Wars. There's, there's only going back and then those... You know, that there's no more films, and I I wanted to to dive into some of the adult novels. I had grown up reading like the Jedi Apprentice and a lot of like the younger yeah, ones the from the too. prequels, but had not really dove into anything that took place after Return of the Jedi. And so I I went and read those first, and that was my mm. first introduction to Thrawn. And I I loved him as a character. I thought he was extremely uh, intriguing. I yeah, he just he, he was really interesting and really unique to Star Wars, especially because he's a pretty uh, empathetic character despite being uh, an imperial yeah and, and then as far as this book goes when they announced the uh, the new canon in 2014 i think it was 2014 I right it was 2014 i remember and i'm a i it was my opinion it's okay if, if it's not others but you i can't share your opinions on this yeah. show, sir. <laughs> i was really excited because i was excited to have something that could all kind of fit together because legends I, I love legends but it had kind of gotten all over the place sure. in some regards and so I was okay with them going ahead and creating a new canon as long as I, we were eventually going to get Thrawn. Yeah. And so when the, he eventually you know, was announced for Rebels and then this book came out, I think it was Celebration like 2015 or 2016, 2016 yeah. that they announced. So I remember watching, I was on spring break, uh, I, I'm a teacher, and I was watching a lot of the like the live streaming and stuff, and I remember it, it like showed the cover of the book, and I was like, "This is what I've been waiting yeah. for." <laughs> uh, and then I pre-ordered it and got it and read, and I, and I enjoyed it. It's, it's a great book. Yeah, I think it's a very uh, it's been a very intriguing book, uh, very intriguing journey so far to kind of walk through these chapters. Um, yeah, very intriguing character. Yeah, so uh, I'll dive right into my chapter summary. Yeah, let's uh, for go for chapter it. five. Thrawn has been blatantly disrespected by multiple cadets at the academy. Eli insists that he report the cadets to Commandant Dean Lark, but Thrawn prefers to wait longer before acting. Eli and Thrawn are invited by cadets Orbar and Turoi to play cards in the metallurgy lab that night, although Eli and Thrawn do not have permission to be there. Despite the two sensing a trap, 
they agree to meet. During the card game and after a verbal exchange with Orbar and Turoi, Thrawn reveals his lieutenant plaques to the two cadets. An instructor enters the room attempting to write Eli and Thrawn up for their unauthorized presence in the lab and is turned away after seeing Thrawn's rank. While returning to the barracks, Thrawn and Eli are ambushed by three hooded men. After an intense struggle, the three men flee the scene. Thrawn finally decides to meet with Commandant Deanlar. It's a great summary. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate it. I, listeners, if you guys don't know, I actually got the idea for a 150-word <laughs> maximum limit summary from uh, Daniel and his podcast. So thank you. Appreciate that. Yeah, you're welcome. So yeah, this uh, this. Chapter starts with Eli and Thrawn having kind of a heated exchange where Eli is upset with Thrawn because multiple cadets have verbally disrespected Thrawn and Thrawn has kind of just been taking the punches and not has not reacted or reported the cadets and Eli wants him to report this stuff to Commandant Deanlark because he knows that Thrawn is a lieutenant as we had uh, talked about in the uh, previous chapters has kept his rank a secret yeah but he's been choosing to take the punches and is waiting for the cadets who have been kind of acting out against him to mm -hmm. take it one step further in the internal monologue at the beginning of the chapter Thrawn mentions that if he doesn't respond to verbal attacks then his opponent will eventually up the scale to perhaps a physical attack. And that's what he's waiting for to see if they can cross the line. Because after a physical attack, then he could probably report that to uh, to Dean Lark. And Eli is, is, is frustrated because he has to also endure this kind of um, hellish start to their tenure at the Academy along with Thrawn. So it's um, yeah, kind of a heated back and forth. And we also get a bit of maybe sympathy from Thrawn to Dean Lark because Thrawn knows that Dean Lark is under a lot of pressure from the political families of the cadets that are at the academy where he knows that some of the cadets have a lot of influence in their families. So if he reports them or takes action against them, then there'll be a lot of blowback towards Dean Lark from those families. So I thought that was maybe some some sympathy from Thrawn towards Dean Lark, maybe like a warrior's respect. I don't know if you had any thoughts on kind of that initial exchange between the two. Yeah, Dean Lark's a really interesting character. I've been intrigued with him since... Have you read Lost Stars? Because I think that's where his first appearance no, was, uh, is in that novel. And he was an interesting character even back then too. He's very self-interested, right? Like yeah. that's his goal is to take care of himself, which is what... I mean, he's an imperial. That's kind of what they yeah. do. But one of the the gifts that Zahn has as a writer is he writes these characters who shouldn't be sympathetic, but somehow you sit there and you're empathizing with them and mm. you, you feel for them. And it's really interesting to see this kind of relationship that Thrawn and, and Commandant Dean Lark have because, like you said, Th Thrawn kind of feels for him. And in some sort of way, Thrawn understands what it's like to be in his position. And again, we don't really know uh, at this point anything yeah. much about Thrawn's past, but it starts to get these little inklings of maybe Thrawn has been in some kind of position like this, that he's able to, instead of being frustrated with Dean Lark's lack of response, he understands his lack of response and is willing to kind of play into that. And that that's, as, as a reader, 
for me, I'm like, what is that for? Is it just, is Thrawn using this or is this some Mm. kind of emotional response from Thrawn? Definitely, maybe a little bit of both. That's true. Um, And I mean, we know Thrawn is, you know, he's always got some kind of strategy at play. He's always got some kind of plan at play. So maybe withholding coming to Dean Lark with these um, initial confrontations, maybe it's playing into some kind of greater strategy down the line. But also I just, yeah, maybe he's also been in, in a similar position and his unknown tenure back with the with the chiss um i thought it's just a, a very interesting position that thrawn has decided to take in respect to dean lark given how much of uh <laughs> given how bad <laughs> dean lark was to eli and thrawn when they both started at the academy. Shut up. Yeah, just, yeah yeah um so that's the very mature of of thrawn i think in the face of the abuse that he's getting, and also just given given the rocky start that they that they both have, and I think we get another instance of Eli's frustration and his maybe naivety when he kind of lashes out at Thrawn a little bit, saying that kind of with a hint of jealousy that he knows that Thrawn is going to leave uh, the academy when they graduate with the rank of lieutenant, and he kind of forgets that Thrawn has so much experience that maybe you know he doesn't know about um, specifically from before the Academy. But there's this, this spat of jealousy, and Thrawn kind of puts him in his place saying, you know, hey, do you remember that, that I have been through a lot back with the Chiss uh, mm-hmm. when I was with their military? And I just think that uh, it's a good reminder in, with Eli's frustration and how Thrawn's able to kind of put him in his place where... Eli is so in over his head right now, I think. He's he's this young guy who has got his career overturned, and the guy who he's kind of who, who he's paired with is going to start out so far ahead of him and as as far as rank goes when they graduate. And Eli kind of uh, he's just been taking the punches and really has no vision or or view of what kind of reward he's gonna get at the end of this. So he's just kind of taking all the punches with no good that he can see coming out of it. Yeah, and I think one of the things that's interesting about their relationship is Eli, he has almost this false perspective of the privilege that, or the lack of privilege that Thrawn has as an alien in the Empire. And this idea that, you know, Eli himself is from, I mean, what is he, a backwater yokel, right? Yeah, is, what, is what he's called. <laughs> yokel. And, uh, which, just as an aside, that word feels weird in Star Wars. It did, and but, I, I loved it being in there. Personally. I know, I'm fine with it. I like I like that. It always reminds me, I don't know if in the original, I, I don't know if you're familiar with this, but in the original, Alan Dean Foster, who wrote the, the not the screenplay, but took the novelization of Star Wars, sure. there's a line where Luke asks Obi-Wan Kenobi, what's a duck? <laughs> While they're on tattoo. <laughs> doing it it's not in the movie or anything and just whenever i think of those kind of words that always makes you think what's a duck yeah <laughs> because a good check you gotta check that out because it's it's pretty rid- whenever like our kind of language or sure. things come in so but you know he is this he's this backwater yokel he's not from one of the core worlds and so eli knows what it's like to be somewhat of an outcast and be kind of on the fringes of kind of social circles here at the academy but I think he sometimes thinks that him and Thrawn are the same, mm. that because he's, uh, you know, experienced some of this pushback from some of the people from the core worlds, that he's he and Thrawn are in the same place. But at the end of the day, Eli's still a human yeah. and Thrawn isn't. And I and we'll, we'll get I know we'll get into a lot more of in the next chapter. They talk a little bit more about the xenophobia that, that yeah. Thrawn experiences. 
But I think Eli gets frustrated because he thinks that Thrawn and his experiences are the same, and they're clearly not. And again, he's a young guy. I mean, Eli's yeah. a very likable character, but he, he's frustrating to me as a reader sometimes because I'm like, don't how do you not see this? But that's such a realistic thing because how yeah, often definitely. is it that we, you know, as humans, we do the same kind of thing? But I think that's an interesting relationship that they have because Eli often thinks they're in the same place when they're really not. Yeah, definitely. Eli is already at a disadvantage being, you know, the backwater yokel, but yeah. Thrawn has the just the added layer of also not being a human. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, which makes his experience, I mean, both of their experiences are very real and, and very hard at the Academy, but Thrawn does have that added layer of torment that he has to receive that he, by default, being an alien in uh, the Imperial Academy, will receive. But yeah, they're both in this together, and, and Thrawn reminds him that, that there's a lot more to to his struggle than Eli might realize at the current moment. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that exchange ends and yeah so they're invited to play cards uh, at the metallurgy lab by a couple of cadets they both know that this is clearly a trap but thrawn decides to walk right into it to eli's confusion and and perplexion which which i reading the chapter the first time i was very very intrigued to see how this would play out because you know they both know something's gonna go wrong but thrawn seeing the confidence that he had in the first chapters this headstrong character who's also maybe a he can think quickly on his feet. So just walking into this whole confrontation, I was very intrigued to see how it played out. And we get a good glimpse of Thrawn's knowledge of strategy when Cadet Orbar is kind of picking his brain exactly yeah. um, over the card game where basically Orbar says, you know, if he theoretically had this hand, kind of like this unbeatable hand in the specific card game that they were playing, how would Thrawn react to that? Or how would he prepare for that? And Thrawn claps back at him saying that, well, if I had the same hand, if we both had this quote-unquote unbeatable hand, then it would just be a deadlock between the both of us, and the best move for you to do would be to challenge someone else. And you can see kind of in this this little uh, exchange that they're both understanding that this uh, confrontation, this challenge, goes deeper than just the card game at hand. Yes. Um, And Orbar knows that, Thrawn knows that, and Thrawn ends up uh, pulling out his lieutenant ranks and fastening them calmly to his uniform. (laughs) Which is so awesome. And I love what he says exactly. He says, I believe you are about to make a challenge after he fastens his ranks and, you know, the other two cadets, their jaws drop. And I've got a kind of internal mic drop tally going for Thrawn. Okay. That's the first of the couple of mic drops in this in this chapter. Uh, yeah, what did you make of that that whole exchange before the instructor enters the room? Yeah, this was, you know, someone who had read the the original Thrawn trilogy first. This was one of the first times where I was like, oh, this is going to be classic Thrawn right here. You know, him going into this and knowing he's clearly walking into a trap and he's so strategic, he's so calculating that you're excited to see the way it's going to play out. And so I know that he's going to be able to take care of business here, but I don't know how. As yeah. a reader, I'm really excited to dive into that. And then as this goes along, it's such, Zahn writes uh, these, this really tense scene that is the subtleties and kind of the way that, that the cadets and Thrawn are talking to Thrawn, or Orbar especially is, is talking to Thrawn. It's really fun. It's very dynamic. Yeah. And with Thrawn just kind of, I actually, the first time I read this and then you know, preparing the podcast right now, I had to reread it a couple times because it happened so quickly. Just, I know that's good writing because even as a reader, I almost miss it. And that's yeah. what's happening. Thrawn just casually taking casually, out yep. uh, his insignia, just placing it there. And it's a mic drop. You're right. But it's a silent mic drop. Yes. That's what's so great about it. And the, their reactions are it, they're, they're great. It's a really fun scene. You know, in the in the midst of a card game, the tactical brilliance of Thrawn on, on just so many levels. So an instructor enters the room and 
Eli assumes that he's also in on the plan to bust them for being there unauthorized uh, in the lab. And the instructor kind of suffers the same fate where he sees the lieutenant ranks and he ends up leaving them be and walks out after realizing that he has no right to challenge a lieutenant there. And as uh, as Thrawn and Eli leave, Thrawn looks down at Orbar and, and says, uh, there is no guaranteed winning hand, Cadet Orbar. I suggest you not forget that. Not entirely a silent mic drop. That's a... Uh, no, that, one's, that, one's, <laughs> yeah. that one's out loud. And then when he says, he's like, good evening, cadets. Just this yeah. like the real... <laughs> like rub it in he knows uh, which which is just like this silky brilliance from Thrawn where even in the midst of this trap that they've set up for him he's just utterly confident the whole oh, yeah. time so they're walking back to the barracks after that win from Thrawn and they're discussing the the timing of Thrawn showing his ranks and we get kind of the, the first instance of Eli being able to piece together Thrawn's plan while talking with Thrawn they're both mm-hmm. discussing it and Eli is actively putting the puzzle pieces together in his mind where he realizes how Thrawn anticipated what the cadets are about to do and timed his move to perfection where if he took out his rank too soon Orbar and Teroy could have warned the instructor away and if he put on the rank too late then the instructor could have got him for improper um, uniform or improper uniform yeah. yeah so just the timing was so perfect from Thrawn and Eli realizes that as they discussed which I thought was really cool because that's kind of our outlet as the readers into what Thrawn is doing in that moment because when he pulls out his ranks the first time we knew none of that thought process and mm-hmm. when they're kind of having this little debrief outside I think those moments are really helpful for us to realize how exactly he's formulating these plans and carrying out these plans in the moment yeah and I think one of the great things about Eli's a character is that he he offers this juxtaposition to Thrawn right I mean we're now kind of in this next part as they're they're walking back afterwards we're back to like you said we're in Eli's limited perspective and we just kind of shifted from Thrawn earlier in the chapter and Thrawn is very calculating he's very he's got there's a lot of judgment and you can compare that to Eli who's emotional uh, he's visceral. There's a. It's a lot mm. different. His reactions are, like I said, they're they're more emotional. Where Thrawn's rarely emotional. And I I was actually thinking that to myself, if Thrawn works as a character without someone like Eli, if we can't ever get inside, because what mm. what what Zahn does with someone like Eli is he gives us a glimpse into yeah, Thrawn's head, right? And he did this in the original trilogy with I think it was like Pelion. I think that was the guy's Captain name. Pelion, yeah, exactly. And I, I wonder if Thrawn works so well as a character when you have another character who's more like us, right, sure. as a reader, to act off of him instead of just Thrawn kind of in his seat of ascendancy, if you will. <laughs> um, <laughs> I like that. Uh, you know, doing all these great things and we're just left to just, you know, with our mouths on the floor, just like, oh my gosh, I can't believe that. But it's it's almost more interesting when we have that, you know, we look inside Pelion's head or Eli's head and and we can relate to that more. I think Thrawn yeah. works really well when he has someone to play off of like that. I mean, as cool as it is to see, you know, his, his strategy in the moment, I do think that, um, and also how entertaining Thrawn's point of view is where we can kind of see how he's breaking down people's body language and analyzing their faces while they're talking to him as far as what that means from their uh, exchanges. Eli's point of view, like you said, it, it's maybe even a lot more interesting 
because it is so helpful for us to to get that glimpse into how Thrawn acts. And like, you know, Eli's learning on the spot, but if we didn't have these Eli point of view chapters where we're able to have that debrief and see how Eli is in his own thoughts piecing together how you know how he perceived Thrawn acting in, in certain situations and how he's talking with Thrawn about how Thrawn unfolded his strategies in those moments. Without those kind of scenes, I think that there would be a lot to be desired, I think. Yeah, Thrawn is a lot more, yeah, like you said, he's a lot more interesting and maybe a lot more powerful of a character when he does have that partner to bring the reader in with him. And I think, I know I, I'm correct that you actually don't go ahead in the book at all, right? You just go kind of right here. Yeah. So I won't talk about later on the book or any of the other books, but I do think that kind of what supports my thesis here which I'm just making up right now is is <laughs> even I so in Rebels when Thrawn shows up in Rebels it's it's not qu- nearly quite as strong I think you mm-hmm. know I actually haven't got to that part yet. So. Oh, sorry. No, so, did you not know that? I'm so <laughs> oh, I know he shows okay, up. Okay, good. I was just going to feel awful. <laughs> and he still works in the show, and it's great to see him. But I think he works so much better uh, in the book. And some of that, I think, is because Z- he's Zahn's character. Yeah. And Zahn writes him so well. But, you know, we don't see this kind of in- any internal stuff really happening in the show. I mean, he says some stuff out loud. Sure. But he's just not as commanding of a presence when he doesn't have someone else to react off of when it's just yeah. our heroes, you know, like Sabine or, or, uh, you know, any of the other, Ezra, any of the other rebels, it just, he doesn't work nearly as well for me as he does here in the book. He still works. I'm yeah. so glad to see him, but it's just not as strong because I think someone like Eli provides almost a better glimpse into Thrawn's mind and the reactions that others around him have sure. and why he's such a compelling character than just being in Thrawn's mind himself does, or just seeing his actions. Yeah. With Eli being very, like you were saying, very, uh, emotionally driven and being the fact that he's also a human like us perceiving these things it just makes it all the more relatable and all the more uh, powerful of of uh of a plot when it's him yeah being able to perceive thrawn aside from us just reading about thrawn doing his own thing without needing to explain what he's doing to someone mm-hmm. like eli which is very you know helpful exposition for for us the, the reader yeah. and, um, the, and the exposition works in the book it doesn't work in a tv show yeah. especially if it's a 22 minute long tv exactly. show <laughs> so yeah there um they're walking back to the barracks and they get ambushed by these three three mm-hmm. men. Thrawn um, sees this happening because he has kind of like a infrared-ish vision and he, he can hear them and see them before Eli knows what's happening. He shoves Eli out of the way and starts to take on these three on his own. And I think what unfolds next in Eli's thoughts is so fascinating because Eli's seeing that Thrawn, as good, as competent as as he is in self-defense, there's no way that he can last forever against three attackers. Mm -hmm. And Eli has this thought for a moment, and he even acknowledges that it's a terrible and and gruesome thought that if he let the fight unfold without even helping Thrawn, that Thrawn would get so badly injured that he would have to drop out of the academy and that Eli could get sent back to the Myomar Imperial Academy and carry on with his career, his education, as he had initially planned it, and how his life could go back to normal if he just lets Thrawn lose here. And I thought, you know, again, this this is drawn back on just how young and over his head Eli is where he he has his plan in mind his plan for his life in mind and he clearly doesn't know what Thrawn has in store for him and neither do we at this point but I just thought that was so fascinating how he just thought for a second if he just lets Thrawn lose everything could go back to normal yeah I think it's interesting because the question then is would Eli prefer a tough career ahead of him but one that brings 
you know, fame and glory and all, you know, all these things? Or would he just rather have just a quiet life as a just imperial bureaucrat, you know, that doesn't really do anything important, but just kind of lives his life? And I, I think Eli would prefer the latter, right? Yeah. He's not actually that interested. And I don't want to get ahead of us at all, but I don't think Eli would really dislike this kind of life. And I don't know that if this did happen, obviously Thrawn doesn't die right here. Yeah. The last episode of the season. <laughs> Closing uh, it now. Thanks <laughs> listeners. So I don't think that Eli would be unhappy. I don't think that, you know, if, if this is what had happened and then Eli goes back to, um, you know, where he, where he was before. And then we checked in on him 20 years later. I think he'd actually be pretty happy. Probably. You know, and so I don't, I think, you know, he says that this isn't really a great thought to have, you know, this could be the end of all of his problems, but I, I think it gives us a good idea of who, who he really is. He, and that, that to me kind of does exemplify this fact that he is kind of this backwater yokel. He doesn't have, you know, I'm sure most of the people on the, the core worlds are very much like, no, I want to rise as high as possible. I yeah. want to gain status and all these things. And Eli's just not interested. And I think that's what's likable about him is that he doesn't care. It's, yeah. And I think, you know, one of the things that's really tough about writing imperial characters is like these guys are the bad guys. These are these are definitely the bad guys. But what makes Eli, I think, likable is he's not here like, oh, I just want to be in the Empire because I want power. He's just here because that's just the government that exists right now. And this is just the you know, he's not really questioning. And there's we could get in later on in the book whether or not he should be questioning a lot of the motives here, his role in them even just as someone who's not at the top of, of this uh, chain of command. But he, he's likable because this isn't, he's not going, like he doesn't want, you know, galactic domination. He just wants a simple life. He just wants to be know? a supply officer and and it's, you know, shipping business. And yeah. Which, you know, kind of leading a simple lifestyle, which I think takes us out of our preconceptions of, of who we think Imperials are. Mm-hmm. And I think that, like you said, it makes Eli more likable and also kind of sets him apart from the other cadets that we've been introduced to with Orbar and Tarui, which we don't know much about them, but given their personalities of, you know, clearly xenophobic against Thrawn and looking with such disdain on, on Eli as well, it, it does set Eli apart. Uh, and I think that that makes him so much more of a valuable and likable character. And he kind of redeems himself in the moment by, you know, he jumps into the fight, helps Thrawn, yeah. distracts the the attackers enough for... Um, Thrawn to get a good hit on one of them and other cadets show up and the three attackers flee the scene and when Thrawn is thanking Eli for helping you know Eli is internally thinking you know I, I could have acted sooner but but to think the fact that he recognized that might be a turning point of sorts in their in their relationship I think yeah and the, the thing that makes him such a intriguing and complicated character is he's doing the right thing. There's three people attacking someone who does not deserve to be attacked in this instance, and he sticks up to help him, which is against his own self-interest. Like, the best thing for him to do if he was just just thinking about himself would be to let this happen. And yet he does what would be considered the right thing in in helping, uh, not not that he saves Thrawn, but helping distract him enough that Thrawn can make it through this fight. And I think that's the kind of complicated nature of Eli that makes him such an intriguing character. He's he's probably actually my favorite character in the book. After I mean, <laughs> I, I mean, I love Thrawn, but I, uh, Eli was such a great addition to the yeah. to the uh, to the world here. Definitely, definitely. That's all I got for for chapter five. I don't know if you wanted to add anything else before we dive right into uh, chapter six. No, let's go for it. Yeah, sure. I'll give a summary for chapter six. Thrawn and Eli report cadets Orbar, Teruoi, and their friends who ambush them to Commandant Dean Lark. Instead of pursuing charges against them, however, Thrawn requests that Orbar's friends be quietly transferred to the Sky Strike Academy, 
for starfighter pilot training. Without knowing where his friends disappeared to, Orbar will be less likely to act against Thrawn again. Thrawn therefore also spares Dean Lark political blowback from Orbar's influential family. Arinda Price causes unrest among Coruscanti landlords after confronting them for indifference to their tenants' requests. Senator Ranking informs Price that she is to head a new citizen's assistant office for Coruscant and Lothal citizens alike, so as to no longer be so closely affiliated with himself by the rich upset by Price's actions. Eli's parents worry for his future being potentially affected by Thrawn at his graduation. And both Thrawn and Eli get assigned to the same cruiser, much to Eli's displeasure. So this chapter begins with Thrawn and Eli telling Dean Lark what happened. Mm-hmm. Um, and they they piece together that the attackers must have been part of Orbar's close group of friends, just given the fact that there was no way to have known that it was Thrawn walking across the plaza that they were without either having electro-binoculars or without having electro-binoculars to identify him, and that, therefore, Eli chipped in that that couldn't be an attack because of jealousy or xenophobia. So there, it must have been an inside job with these attackers having... Someone been, else was... Yeah, yeah. exactly, yeah. with Orbar and Turi kind of pulling the strings there. And like Thrawn had talked with Eli about in, in the previous chapter... Dean Lark is under a lot of pressure here because Orbar has an influential family on Coruscant, but Dean Lark knows that he can't just let this slide. You know, cadets have been attacked on the academy grounds, and he can't he can't just let this go by without some kind of punishment. But interestingly enough, Thrawn asks that Orbar's friends, the the attackers, to be transferred to the Skystrike Academy. Which pause for a second. I yes. guess you don't know about Skystrike Academy shows up later in Rebels. I wouldn't but know. since you haven't gotten to Thrawn yet. You also they'll. You, I don't want to say anything else. You will enjoy. It. It's a it's a great episode. Okay. And there's some fun surprises along the way. Interesting. Interesting. Let's go. I think it's episode four of or five of season three. Oh, I'm getting close there. In there. Yeah. About the end of season two. So coming up on that. I think this is a testament to Thrawn's maturity as well as you know strategy. We'll see how this plays out in the end because he's always working some kind of plan out with with his moves. But he tells Dean Lark, and because Dean Lark is shocked by this suggestion, he's like, "You, know, you don't want to punish these guys? They they attacked you." And Thrawn says that this is a solution that's best for the Empire as a whole. And I think that that is, uh, yeah, a very mature and calculated and and calm choice by Thrawn to he got attacked, but. He's still thinking big picture, and I think that's kind of what we're what we're gathering a lot about Thrawn is that he always has his mindset further ahead. That each each move he makes is is part of this long term goal, and we'll see how this plays out. He's clearly valuing the interests of the Empire in this moment, despite being uh, being attacked on yeah. the Academy grounds. So Thrawn and Eli end up debriefing after Dean Lark dismisses them. He agrees to their plan, and you know Thrawn's explaining himself to Eli, and. He notes that he asks Eli because Eli uh, Eli says that you know I can't believe that he agreed to this plan or to, to this suggestion and Thrawn says yeah so did you notice this sculpture of a warship to in his office <laughs> and I that was so out of left field for me <laughs> like it's like yeah didn't you see that ship over there of course you knew you knew that he would uh, of course I knew that he would agree but but this is uh, a glimpse into 
Thrawn's relationship with artwork, I guess, and that he saw that this sculpture in Dean Lark's office was way too expensive for Dean Lark to have been able to afford himself or for the Academy to afford to supply Dean Lark with. So he knew from that sculpture that Dean Lark was kind of in the pocket, so to speak, of these wealthy families of Coruscant who must have supplied him with the sculpture and that Dean Lark accepted the suggestion because, yeah, that would clearly save him from being, uh, from having repercussions from these wealthy families for punishing the cadets involved. I thought that was a really... uh, (laughs) funny and interesting uh, and very very particular moment where Thrawn just was able to gather that from looking at a, a warship which he and Eli agree that it was a sailing warship a sculpture of a sailing warship and I thought do, do they have those in Star Wars like is this like a Christopher Columbus type <laughs> <laughs> ship do yeah. they have those well, they in uh, in Attack of the Clones uh, Count Dooku has that weird kind of like uh, spaceship that has the sail come out of the front right, of it yeah. right so I mean that's kind of uh, a sail maybe that, right maybe that's uh, maybe that's kind uh, have of we a... ever seen other sails I don't in Star think, Wars I don't think so not that I, I can know. think at the top of my head. Listeners, if you have any uh, knowledge about sailing warships in Star Wars, feel free to yeah. <laughs> let me know. There's got to be something in all the books. Maybe in Legends, there's a... Uh, Maybe in know, Legends. <laughs> we'll dive into that. Yeah, this Thrawn's relationship to art and culture is pr- probably my favorite thing about the character. I think it's... And I think also just for personal reasons, because I, I teach ancient medieval history and literature, and we do a lot of culture studies of art, especially in, my, in our studies of history. We look at different cultures, and we'll study their art to get a better understanding of these cultures. So I, I very much enjoy that just because it's exciting to me as an educator. But it's, it's so great because you have this idea of Thrawn as this completely calculating, emotionless you know, alien, yet he uses art, which is so often emotional, Sure. Right. Yeah, in definitely. nature, not always, but but often can be. And he uses that in a way that's very emotionless. And so I, you know, as we get into this book, we'll see a little bit more of Thrawn. But I think what's so interesting in his study of art is that it is completely, up to this point at least, completely void of any of the emotion or feelings that went into the creation of that art. Yeah. He then takes he takes these creations and he uses it completely to his advantage. And in this one he's actually just looking at it on the wall and saying, "Oh, this is, you know, it's price and it's uh, the, how valuable it is, is what I is how I'm able to determine this. There's other times that we'll see him like look at the art itself and like, well, here's because it depicts this thing, I'm yeah. able to tell this about it. And I I I think that's what's so fun about the character is the way that he uses this and the way that it's almost in juxtaposition of him as a character. It's not like he's this crazy artist himself, right? That's, you know, he's so just in the midst of it that he just really can just feel this thing. No, it's, it's, he looks at it almost as like a robot. It's like, yeah. well, this means this to me. And yeah, it's such a great part of his character. So I'm glad that that made it into, you know, as they had announced this new book, I didn't really know what was going to become of Thrawn. Like, how are they going to change the character? Are there any ways that Zahn will re- rewrite him? And I'm so happy when this appeared. I was like, nope, that's still yeah. there. That's I'm so happy. Yeah, that definitely was. Uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to see how that aspect of his strategy and kind of just how he calculates uh, plays out further on in the book. It, it was a really cool moment to see how much he gathered off of just coldly taken in art yeah and uh he we see a kind of like a, a cunningness from thrawn where they're talking about how they've now sent orbar's friends to the sky academy 
And it seems like it's a good deal for them. Like, oh, they're just going to become starfighter pilots now. But Thrawn, we see this kind of cunning where he knows that, yeah, they're being shipped off somewhere they don't know. They don't know how long they're going to be there. No one knows where they're going. You know, they, they have enough time to tell Orbar, yeah, we're getting sent somewhere. We don't know where. <laughs> and then they'll be at the acad- at the Skystrike Academy never knowing if all of a sudden. Yeah, in, yeah, yeah. incommunicado, never knowing if they're just going to be called back for trial in Coruscant. So that's kind of like a psychological consequence right there for them, which Thrawn knows and, and and kind of that's his, you know. That's what he's doing purposefully. He's trying yes. to get inside Orbar's head and knows that this is way worse than like a slap. Because all he would have gotten was a slap on the wrist. Yeah. And this is he's, something... getting, he's getting nothing here yeah. and it's way worse. And so that's very wise of Thrawn to, yeah. to do that. Very, uh, very cold and calculating. Um, I thought that was, you know, because we, we would have wanted to see some kind of punishment happen. And now we get kind of a glimpse for what kind of repercussions can happen, even though they're getting sent to become starfighter pilots. So I thought that was pretty cool. I have a question for you, just to go back uh, to Commandant Dean Lark, because in that conversation before they decide what they're actually going to do, you know, he kind of talks about, you know, he's a guy that plays by the rules, but he also accepts that the rules aren't fair or just. There's the line where, you know, Thrawn's like, is not such manipulation of the justice system in itself illegal? And, you know, Dean Lark's like, of course it is, right? Do you think that Thrawn... And Eli as well, the, we're in Thrawn's head at this point. Is he trying to get inside Dean Lark's head, or is he just acknowledging that, yep, the, the galaxy we live in is broken, and so we just have to play by the rules that are set there? Or is he kind of challenging Dean Lark to think more about, hey, like, you're actually in a position to change some of these unjust rules as, as he's a pretty high-ranking Imperial. Is that going on at all, or do you think it's simply just Thrawn's like, no, I understand this is the rule book, and I'm not interested in changing it? I part of me would think that that there is something deeper going on there where he's trying to help Dean Lark redeem himself because you know Dean Lark is sunk into the to the norm of the imperial politics where yeah he recognizes that there's you know illegal action that are just you know casually going on um, all the time and that like you said that Dean Lark has a has a chance to maybe kind of enact some kind of change there but also I think that Thrawn this might be a very honest moment for Thrawn where he's just asking a question because he knows nothing about imperial true. politics. Yeah, yeah. Where, and Eli knows that, you know, that might be Thrawn's greatest weakness at this point is that he's so unfamiliar with, the, you know, the social hierarchy of, of you know, the Imperial Academy with the political hierarchies. And I think that as much as, as much as I want to think that there's something deeper going on here, I, I honestly think that Thrawn is just trying to... It's just confused. Yeah, he, that's, that's he just, cool. I mean... Yeah, because that is kind of a weakness that he he is very unfamiliar with um, with the imperial political field, and I think this I, yeah I think that he's just asking an honest question here personally. Uh, I might be wrong, but um, I do opinion. know that that yeah. Eli especially recognizes that that is one of Thrawn's weak points that he doesn't know the feel of the uh, of imperial politics. So I th- I I think that yeah Thrawn was just uh, asking a question, just asking here, a question, which yeah. seems very anticlimactic, but that's just my no, that's, that's just fine. my guess. Uh, <laughs> I don't know if if you had another uh, I I didn't I wasn't fishing for an answer. Yeah. I legitimately just wondered. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. That's on the on the podcast that I co-host. Our job, uh, with my other co-host Phil and I, our job is to read deeply into stuff, even if there's nothing sure. there. And so that's I I like just asking those questions. Yeah, that was that was good. That was good. Thank you. So that scene closes out with Thrawn touching briefly on why he was exiled by the Chiss, and he briefly talks about how he had 
preemptively attacked pirates who had been, you know, attacking defenseless worlds near and around the the Chiss, uh, I guess, sphere of influence, mm-hmm. and that the Chiss refused to attack unless they're the victims here. And that's that's how he got exiled was because he attacked when he should have waited until like if they got attacked. I thought that might be a lot for him to to get exiled for. I thought maybe there's something more at play here that there's something that he's holding back because if he's just attacking pirates without waiting to be provoked, that that's a lot to to maybe send out one of their potentially highest military officials into exile for. So I thought that was maybe something more at play that there's something more that to be led on here by Thrawn that he's withholding from Eli about his exile. I don't know if you had any thoughts on that. Yeah, I think it reveals more about the Chiss than it does about Thrawn. Mm. We're 85 pages in at this point, and this makes, of course, Thrawn would preemptively strike. I mean, if if it's the right, you know, if it makes sense from a calculating point of view. It's not weird to think that he would be like, no, I, I, I counted everything up, and this is what made the most sense, and so I did it. That seems normal for Thrawn. So this really, to me, it reveals more about the culture he comes from, that they won't do any preemptive strikes, and then what he does, does he's completely exiled, which shows us that Ron must be quite different than the rest of the culture that he comes out of. And at this point, we really don't know much, but it starts to give us a little bit of a, a hint of, as to what uh, his background is like. Yeah, clearly uh, very different stances between him and, and his people. So the the chapter moves on to then rendezvousing us back with Arinda Price. And she is, uh, this is just a short bit from the chapter, but she's basically busting these various landlords for not paying attention to their tenants requests you know whether that's for like maintenance or uh i know i know that she brought up uh <laughs> a water leak that was that was being ignored and uh she took that straight to the landlord himself rather than one of his employees and so ba- she so she's digging up a lot of a lot of dirt on these landlords and senator ranking contacts her because these landlords are complaining to the higher officials above them, and those officials are coming to ranking saying, "Yo, what's what's your, what's the deal with your yeah. uh, your new appointee here? That's just causing all this trouble." Where where Price knows that she's not doing anything wrong, where she reminds the landlords that, "Yeah, these are just the regulations that you have to follow. Yeah, I'm just making sure that you're doing that." Where the politicians, you know, they don't care about fixing water leaks for their tenants. You know, they don't care about these small little requests. They're just there to make money and kind of hold on to their power. And ranking kind of gives in to the complaints to him from the uh, politicians who are now upset at Price's actions. And he sends Price away to a citizen's assistance office, kind of far removed from where she had previously been working, still on Coruscant, closer to the federal district, yeah. but some a way to just get Price out of his sphere. And now she's helping all of Coruscant citizens rather than just Lotholian citizens. So he, he is... Uh, he's playing the game. Yes, he's, he's playing the <laughs> game. And, and she knows that. And she's playing along too. Um, yes. She's really, uh, I don't know what you, what you gather from Price so far, but she's taken a lot of different kinds of punches than what Thrawn was taken, you know, in the pre- in the previous chapter. She is, she's taken a lot of, I don't know if it's, if it's setbacks, but she is giving a lot of ground to ranking in order to continue along her slow, steady path to power that she's got plotted out for herself. Yeah, I think one of the interesting things Zahn does with Price and Thrawn is... Yeah, I guess I don't want to talk too much about later on, but just even right now, their storylines are not really crossing over at all. And yet, uh, and despite being from very different backgrounds, their 
meeting a lot of you know the same problems and they're dealing with it very differently except that both of them are in the long game yes like both of them have vision to see that it's not about the small victories i'm trying to win the war i'm not trying to win the battle i'm trying to win the whole war and so it's fun to watch the way that these two characters interact with the problems that are around them yeah and i think that's one of the reasons that i really enjoy price's story i, th- I think i mean i think it's an interesting choice to give her uh, as big of a role here in the book called Thrawn, right? I, I think it really works. I really enjoy the inclusion of her story, not just later on what happens, but I think it's a really strong uh, comparison between the two. And I, I actually like going back and forth and seeing the way that they both react sure. to the the larger world around them. They both seem to easily understand that they cannot control everything around them. However, they can at least try to anticipate and react to those uh, maneuvers by other people who have more power than them. Yeah, and that's exactly what they both have been doing, just anticipating the next move and trying to either be one step ahead or one step to the side and let things play out and then making their move. Yeah, and there's an interesting role that, that Price plays in allowing us to be like see what Eli could be. Eli is more similar kind of from yeah. Price's. I mean, she's, I mean, she's from Lothal. She, she's obviously from a much different kind of social class than Eli is, but they're both kind of fish out of water here on Coruscant. I mean, Thrawn is too, but even more so. Yeah. And we kind of get an idea of here's what Eli could be. And again, <laughs> as we look at it and the, the complexity of these being Imperials, it's like, well, do you really want him to be this? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right? But the idea is, as we read this, here, here's what he could be if he just, not relaxed, but if he just had vision outside of just the next month or the next week and said, if he looked really far into the future, Eli could have some of this same stuff. Question is, I guess, would he want that? Yeah, um, that's, that's really true. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I do no, but I don't. <laughs> For the sake of the episode, we don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, no, that is that is very uh, interesting. I hadn't thought about that before. Where to kind of get a, a character that Eli very well could be at some point if mm-hmm. if he if he took certain steps. Um, very fascinating little little side plot there. Um, and she's getting you know even though she accepts this move by ranking to go to a an office where she'll no longer be affiliated with him, she's now closer to the federal district and she has a chance now to move up the social ladder of Coruscant, which is exactly what she wants. So even though this is kind of a setback of sorts for her, she's got her mind set on the long game, like you said. Um, so very interested to see how that plays out for her. So we we come now then to. The graduation from the academy, Eli is with his parents, and they are very worried about Thrawn's influence in Eli's career moving forward now. Where, you know, they're about to get their assignments and they're wondering where their son is gonna end up because, you know, he's already been derailed to some extent being assigned to him at the academy. And so they're very mystified by Thrawn and very yeah, very worried for their son if he's going to still have the career that he dreamt of or if Thrawn has now just taken everything and thrown it up in the air. And Thrawn walks up and uh, talks with his family a bit. I thought this was a, a, a funny moment. Eli's dad asks Thrawn if all the myths and legends <laughs> yeah. that he's heard about this the Chiss are true. And Thrawn, maybe with some humor, says uh, the most flattering ones, of course. I thought that was... Uh, <laughs> But he says it deadpan, though. You know, yes. he's, he's, it's, it's I mean, humor, he, but it's very dry. But he did have a, a small smile. That is true. Face, I take that back. So yeah. maybe, so maybe there's uh, some some emotion creeping in. But I was not expecting that kind of uh, response. I mean, maybe I was expecting that response, maybe without the smile. But maybe got some humor from our guy Thrawn here. We also get here a sense of 
the loneliness that Thrawn still has. I know this is kind of a, a weird read of this, but as I read through this, it's even with Eli's family, who are an extension of Eli himself, who was really Thrawn's only ally, and maybe at this point, friend. I don't know. It might be too early to call them friends, but especially with what's especially about to happen. Next. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. But even Eli's family, it's such an awkward conversation. Yeah. Like it is one of those things where it's kind of full of some like microaggressions a little bit where yeah, they're, they're saying some, it's like, yeah, like they're, they're being friendly, but they're very much treating Thrawn as an other. Yes. And it's just, you feel kind of bad for Thrawn that even with his close you know, ally acquaintances, acquaintances, family here, he's still very much on his own. And again, it just kind of comes back to me. This is why he's such an endearing character. He's about to get a big promotion as an Imperial. I shouldn't be excited for him or feel bad for him. And I, I feel kind of bad for him. Like, I wish he had more friends. I wish this guy, yeah, it's you know. Kind of a, a lonely road for this guy. Because, you know, even Eli doesn't, he, he only sees his experience with Thrawn as being just this short stint. Or at least that's very much what he wants. He wants yeah. to just get this over with and then move on back to his own life. So even Thrawn's closest ally so to say is is also just wanting to get out of there and and just and have nothing to do with thrawn so yeah you kind of feel bad for him you know you can tell eli's dad just is is pretty much figuratively just like tapping his watch making sure that you know it's like all right I, you know i gotta leave we gotta go yeah so yeah yeah Thr thrawn is just uh he's, he's going solo um and on top of all that his culture has exiled him yes so <laughs> it's just on top of going all of these guy. things <laughs> no one wants himself. him yeah no one wants him Except for uh, maybe uh, Palpatine, because uh, you know, he's graduated with the rank of lieutenant, and Thrawn is assigned to be the second weapons officer on the Gazanti class cruiser, the Blood Crow. And pause for a second. I want—is this a good spaceship name or no? The Blood Crow. I I like it. It's a great spaceship. I name. love it. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, it, and it's very <laughs> imperial. I think like they always have like the, the you know because I know that Thrawn's. Uh, well, I guess I can't really go into. <laughs> uh, it, it is a great ship name. I I, I I love in Star Wars, whether it be the books or the movies. I love just how dead on evil all. Yeah, the, like <laughs> very this on is the brand. Devastator. <laughs> this is. The... I think I think Tarkin's ship was the Executrix or like yeah. Uh, yeah so, what was Vader's? Uh, was it the Executor? Is that what it is? I, I think mean, that's I could... the name of the Super Star Destroyer. Where there's got to be people yelling into their phones right now because. I don't know. This is your pack. It's not mine. Right so. here. Uh, what was it? it was um, the Executor. Yeah. Okay. Wow. Yeah. So the Executor, very uh, on brand for uh, Vader and, you know, well, I just, yeah, I love it. It's like, that's our, our brand for names of all of our ships is just really bad sounding stuff. Yes. You know? I mean, it's cool sounding too. So oh, they, they got that going. The sounds style great. points I for mean, the Imperials right here. I mean, they call it the Death Star. I so mean, they very much <laughs> embrace this idea. Yes. Oh, they, of, they know it. They're comfortable with it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Go for it. Um, I'll tell you who's who's not comfortable right now, um, Eli. So <laughs> he's not happy about this situation. Before he reads his assignment on his uh, data pad, and I'm going to quote the book here. This is his thoughts. As his time at the Royal Imperial was coming to an end, so was his time with Thrawn. It had been interesting, but he was ready to move on. And you know, we're only at you know, we still got 300 pages left, man. I'm like <laughs> I don't know. Sorry, Eli. Um, this is that. That's a no from me, man. This, uh, and and as we find out, his assignment is to be Thrawn's aide aboard the Blood Crow, yeah. and he is pissed. He, uh, yeah, he he can't seem to catch a break with both his education being thrown off, being sent to the Royal Imperial, and now, now he's sent to to be with Thrawn aboard the Blood Crow, and 
Yeah, so Eli is given another, uh, from his point of view, he's handed another L, but Thrawn maybe has some kind of uh, plans for our guy Eli moving forward. Yeah, and I think this, I mean, this is such a great scene. I, I really enjoy it. And again, it speaks, I keep talking about it, but it's so true. It speaks to Zahn's strength and in his ability to build strong, relatable characters. Here at Eli's kind of moment of triumph of, you know, he's graduating from the academy. This is a big deal that's kind of stolen from him because of his placement as the aide to Thrawn. So really, as as readers, or at least just speaking for me, I shouldn't really want him to get higher a yeah. higher promotion in the Empire, but I can't help feeling sorry for him that he he's now just an aide to Thrawn. I'm like, oh, I wish he'd gotten a better job. And then likewise, although Thrawn is... Uh, he's a villain. I can't help but empathizing with him because of all the xenophobia he's experiencing. Yeah. At the, I mean, it goes on just, I don't want to get ahead of us, but you know, a page later, Eli's thinking to himself, Thrawn would have to try twice as hard as anyone else and succeed twice as often just to stay even with them. Yeah. And, and you feel bad for the guy. And you know, Eli in all of this, his frustration is not necessarily that he feels bad for Thrawn because of that. It's more like, oh, but if he has to work twice as hard, that means I have to work yeah. twice as hard because now their futures are kind of inseparable at this point. So far. At this point, yeah. They are completely intertwined and whatever happens to Thrawn is gonna happen to Eli. And the frustrating thing, which I don't think Eli recognizes yet, is that Eli's only gotten this far because of Thrawn. It's true. But now he's stuck with Thrawn too. Yeah. Right. Yeah. If they weren't already in this from the from the start, they're definitely in this together now. Um, oh yeah, and the the chapter ends with Thrawn kind of making this vow to Eli that he's going to work to get to the rank of of admiral as soon as possible. Because Eli very serious yes, about it, and and Eli recognizes that too, and he kind of gets this chill knowing that because he's heard part of the legends of the Chiss have been that they they don't make idle promises mm -hmm. and. From Eli's point of view, we kind of see that, yeah, Thrawn means business here. And this is only the beginning of his journey upwards through the Imperial ranks. So that's all that I got for Chapter 6. I don't know if you had anything else before we uh, before we close. I just have a question, which is, which is a worse title? Aid to Lieutenant Thrawn or would Assistant to mm. Lieutenant Thrawn be worse? Gosh, that's a really, that's a good or one. Or Assistant to the Lieutenant assistant Thrawn. To the <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't know. Aid is just like... Aid is just so flat, I yeah. think. It's it, not it's, an opinion. It's just worse. It's it's yeah. objectively it's worse. Just, <laughs> Assistant is way better to be Yeah, yeah Aid like, feels like I don't know, like a like a high schooler helping out. It's you know what I mean? Like Yeah, it's it like just it feels so juvenile. Boy. Yeah, it's it's <sighs> Eli's just just taking all kinds of L's, you know, even yeah. <laughs> you know, he's he's aboard a cool sounding ship now, but he's just an aide. So he's <laughs> yeah, just an aide. I, I would have yeah. to go with, with, with team aid on that one, being the worse. Yeah. I would agree. So that is, that is uh, all that I've got for Chapter 6. Thank you again for coming on the show, Daniel. I really appreciate it. Uh, yeah, this has been really great. Thanks for having me. Uh, I wonder if could you give a little about what you do and, and your show? Yeah, sure. So uh, the name of the podcast is The Lamp Post Listener. Uh, the subtitle, I think, is something like the chronicling C.S. Lewis's World of Narnia. So uh, my co-host and I, we read uh, one chapter of the Chronicles of Narnia at a time. And we talk about um, some connections, some allegories, and just enjoy just the work of and the world of C.S. Lewis. We are currently in season three, we're on Voyage of the Dawn Treader, mm. and we're having a great time. We're really enjoying it, and uh, we love any, any listeners to come over and visit us. And ho hopefully, you'll be on the show sometime soon. Yeah, we're trying I, to get you on. Try, yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you'll have me. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, I'd love if to. listeners like you, they can just find that one episode and listen to it and yeah, go back go. to Star Wars. But <laughs> you guys have got some, some downloads there. Um, yeah. 
There's got to be some crossover for uh, yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, if they've got a Star Wars uh, fan who's doing a Narnia podcast, there's bound to be some listeners who'd love to check out your show. Yeah, listeners, please do check out the Lamppost Listener. It's a great, great podcast, and has now uh, kind of inspired me to reread the Chronicles of Narnia just with this new take from back from uh, instead of just reading it for the first time when I was 12. I get to understand it in, in a new lens now. So. I, I really do, as someone who read them as a child and then has read them many times as an adult, I really think they're better as an adult. <laughs> I, <laughs> I mean, probably. I like, think Objectively. Yeah, perhaps. I think there's, there's spectacular books uh, for children as well, but I think Lewis's, uh, his writing and his just craft really shines uh, as you, as an, for adult readers. I mean, they're, they're very much still books that can easily be enjoyed by children, but I have found the richness of them has really come to life as I read them as an adult. Yeah, definitely a, a, a fresh look as, as an adult where you can really understand the, the symbolism and the between the lines a Absolutely. bit more than when you were uh, a kid. So uh, yeah, listeners, check out the Lamppost Listener, and Daniel, thank you again for coming on the show. Listeners, if you want to find out more about this show or want to stay up to date on it as we move forward through season one, feel free to give us a follow on Twitter at Outer Rim Read Pod. And if you want to stay up to date on listening to the episodes, feel free to follow us wherever you get your podcasts. And feel free to give us a good review on Apple Podcasts if you're enjoying the show. It really helps other listeners and other people who are interested in a show like this to find Outer Rim Reads. I'd appreciate that so much. Outer Rim Reads is created by Andrew Geha. It is edited by Andrew Geha. It is produced by Andrew Geha. And we will be back in two weeks with episode four. So until then, sit back and enjoy. Looks like the Boon to Eve classic is playing on the TV over there. You might want to put your money on that Skywalker kid.